You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. This is Lecture 9, given in Dornach on the 2nd of June, 1923, entitled From Space Perspective to Color Perspective. Yesterday I endeavored to show you that an anthroposophical world outlook will have to help bring a much stronger artistic impulse back into human civilization and culture than either materialism or naturalism can bring about. I endeavored to show you what kind of experience an anthroposophical eye, E-Y-E, for things has, if I may use this expression, with regard to architectural form and architectural creations, and how it experiences the art of dress, which nowadays is not even considered to be an art, the very suggestion causing amusement. I also referred to the fact that man's own human form can be seen to be an artistic creation, in that his head receives its form from the cosmos and correlates with man's total form. But let us try once again to look at some essential aspects of these three artistic approaches to the world. When we consider architectural forms, then, according to what I said yesterday, we have to see them as something which human souls expect to find, as it were, when they leave the physical body behind, particularly in the event of death. I said that during the physical earth existence, it is the physical body which gives the human soul its spatial relationship to its environment. It thus experiences spatial forms. Yet these spatial forms actually belong to the external physical world. When the soul leaves the physical world as at death, it tries, as it were, to imprint its own form on space. It goes in search of all the forms, lines or surfaces which will enable it to grow away from space and grow into the spiritual world. And essentially this is what architectural forms are, insofar as they can be considered art. So if we want to understand the actual artistic aspect of architecture, we always have to look at where the human soul is leaving the body and to what its needs are in regard to space. To help understand the actual artistic element of dress, I drew attention to the delight in dress shown by primitive peoples, who still have at least a general sense of the fact that they have descended from the spirit realms into the physical world and a physical body and know it in their hearts. Excuse me, and know in their hearts, quote, this physical body which we now inhabit is different from what we were used to in the spiritual world, close quote and they feel instinctively the need to choose a covering with the kind of colors and shapes which will remind them of their pre-earthly existence. 
The dress of primitive peoples shows us, as it were, a clumsy imitation of man's astral being before he descended into earth existence. In architecture, we see a reference to the soul's aspirations when it leaves the physical body, whereas in the art of dress, to the extent that we feel it as an art, we see the soul's aspirations after it has descended into the physical form out of the spirit realms. If you experience strongly what I described last yesterday, what I described last yesterday, namely that man's head formation is a metamorphosis of the rest of his body of the previous incarnation, and you experience this as coming into being with the help of the beings of the higher hierarchies, in our heavenly home of the spirit, out of the combination of forces of our previous incarnation, then you will have understood the tremendously complex metamorphosis of the human head, the upper part of the head. Whereas if you rightly understand all that belongs to the middle part of the head, the nose formation, lower eye formation, you will have done so by adapting the head formation that comes from the spiritual world to the chest formation in man. The form of the nose has a relation to the breathing, to what actually belongs to the chest man. And if we rightly understand the lower part of the head, the formation of mouth and chin, we see, even in the head, a reference to adaptation to earthly conditions. In this way we can understand the whole of man. In each curve of the upper part of the head, and in each place where the lower skull or face bones protrude or recede, we feel how the supersensible being of man is expressed directly in visible form. And one can then feel the close connection between the upper part of man's head, the actual arch, and the heavens, and between the middle part of the face and the earth's encircling round, the air and the ether, and we can feel that the mouth and chin formation which have an inner relation to the whole limb system of man, to his metabolic system, expresses man's bondage to the earth. This is the way to understand man's whole being, entirely from the artistic point of view, and witness him as an image of the spirit in the immediate present. Thus we can say, quote, In sculpture we behold a human being spiritually as he appears in the present, whilst architecture refers to the soul's departure from the body and the art of dress to the soul's coming into the body. The art of dress refers back, as it were, before life on earth, and architecture refers to a time beyond this life. Hence architecture, as I said yesterday, began with tombs, whereas sculpture points to the direct connection between man's earthly form and spiritual happenings, showing how man is constantly overcoming the naturalistic earth element and expressing spirit in his whole form and every single part of it. These, then, are the arts concerned with spatial forms. Therefore, they are the ones which point to the various ways in which our souls are related to the world through our physical spatial bodies. 
If we now take a step nearer to spacelessness, we pass from sculpture to painting. Painting can only be properly experienced if we reckon with the artist's materials. Today, in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, painting, most strongly of all, has assumed a character leading to naturalism. This shows clearest of all in the fact that painting has actually lost its deeper understanding of color, and the modern conception of art has in fact become a distorted sculptural conception. In this day and age, we have a sculptural experience of the people we paint. In addition to this, we also have spatial perspective, which actually only arrived on the scene in the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, the line of perspective telling us what is in front and what is behind. In other words, it wants to conjure spatial relationships onto the canvas. This rejects at the outset the most important material the artist has, for he does not create in space, he creates on a flat surface, and it is quite ridiculous to want to experience the thing spatially when one's basic material is a flat surface. Now do not imagine for a moment that I am making some kind of fantastic objection to perceiving spatially, for it was essential to mankind's evolution to conjure spatial perspective onto a flat surface, and it had to come. But it has to be surmounted. Not that in the future we need not understand perspective, we must understand it, yet we must be capable of returning to color perspective and make use of that again. A theoretical understanding of this by itself is not sufficient, of course, for the impulse to create artistically has to come from something far more powerful and elemental than mere theoretical understanding. And this can indeed happen. Bearing on this, I should, first of all, like to recommend to you to have another look at what I said about the world of color on one occasion here, a talk which Albert Steffen has reproduced in his own way so wonderfully, that his rendering is much better than the original lecture. You can read it in the title Gertianum. That is the first thing. Secondly, I should like to tackle the following questions with you. Outside in nature we see colors. We see colors on things, things that we can count, measure, and weigh. In short, we see color attached to physical objects. Yet color, as anthroposophists will have fully realized by now, is something spiritual. We even see color in minerals, that is to say, in the part of nature which, in the way we see it at present, is not spiritual. In modern times, physics has made this simpler and simpler for itself by saying, quote, Oh, colors cannot be attached to dead material, for they are spiritual. Therefore, they are only in the mind and things outside are such dead matter. They are just the vibrations of material atoms. Quote. These atoms have an effect on the eye, on the nerve, and something else too, which they leave undefined, and the colors arise in the mind. This is just an apology for an explanation. So that the matter becomes quite clear, or what I mean to say is, so that it is brought to a point where there is at least a possibility of it becoming clear, let us consider the colors in the lifeless world, the colored mineral world, 
As we said, we see colors on purely physical things, which we can count, measure, and weigh. We see color attached to these. But everything we perceive in these things by means of physics does not give us color. You can do as many sums as you like with the sort of things the physicist deals in, such as number, measure, and weight, yet you will not approach color. That is why the physicist explains it by saying that colors are only in the mind. Now I should like to explain this by means of an image which I want to form in the following way. Imagine that, imagine I have a sheet of red paper in my left hand and a sheet of green in my right, and I make certain movements with them in front of you. Sometimes I cover the red sheet with the green one, and sometimes the other way round over and over again. And in order to carry it, I sometimes move the green one up like this and the red one down like that. Let us imagine I perform this in front of you today. Then we let three weeks go by, and three weeks later I do not come with sheets of green and red paper, but with two white sheets, and do the same movements with those. It will occur to you that although I now have sheets of white paper, I produced certain perceptual impressions three weeks ago with a red and a green sheet. I am also polite enough to say that we can take it for granted that all of you have such vivid imaginations that although I am now showing you white sheets, you see the same phenomenon in your memory imagination, which you saw three weeks before with the red and green sheets. Your imagination is even so vivid that you do not remember that these are only white sheets. But because I am doing the same movements, you see the same color harmonies I produced three weeks previously with the red and green sheets. You see what you saw three weeks ago, although I have not got a red and green this time. In fact, I have no colors at all to show you. But I am doing the same gestures and movements as I did three weeks ago. Actually, something like this is taking place in nature when you see, say, a green jewel. Only the green jewel is not dependent on your inner imagination. It functions by means of the imagination concentrated in your eye, E-Y-E. For the eye, the human eye, and all its veins and nerve strands is constructed with the imagination, is the outcome of live imagination. So when you look at a green jewel, just because your eye is an organ which is full of imagination, you cannot see it in any other way than as it was constructed out of the green color of the world of spirit infinite years ago. The moment you see the green jewel, you transport your eye back into far distant ages, and the green appears to you because divine spiritual beings created this substance out of the spiritual world, out of the green color belonging to the spirit. The moment you see green, red, blue or yellow in precious stones, you look back into the infinitely far distant past. In fact, when we see colors, we do not at all see just what is contemporary. We look back into far distant perspectives of time. We cannot in fact see a colored jewel at all, as just something belonging to now, any more than we can see a church spire immediately beside us if we are standing hundreds of feet below. Being at a distance from it, we can see it in perspective. If a topaz is put in front of us, we cannot see it merely in this moment. We have to see 
a time perspective. And as the jewel takes us back in time, we look at the first beginnings of earth creation before the Lemurian epoch of our earth evolution. And because we see it being created out of the spirit, we see it colored. Physics does something monstrously absurd in this regard. It spreads this world out in front of us with vibrating atoms behind it which are supposed to cause colors. Whereas it is really that the divine spiritual beings who created stones long ages ago come alive in the colors and stimulate a living memory in us of their past creations. When we see lifeless nature colored, it is that our mutual relation with lifeless nature is making a memory of the far distant past become a reality. And each time the earth's green carpet of plants appears before us in spring, anyone who can understand this appearance of green in nature does not only see the present, but looks back to the time when the plant world was created out of the spirit during the ancient sun evolution. And this creation out of the spirit was in the element of green. Actually, we see color in nature aright if the color stimulates us to see past creations of the gods in nature. To achieve this, the first thing we need is a chance to live with color in an artistic way. For instance, we need an opportunity to experience the flat surface as such, as I have often intimated, and as you will find in the relevant lectures in the title Gertianum, to experience that the surface recedes when I paint with blue and comes closer when I paint with red or yellow. For we need to acquire color perspective again, the experience of what is near and far on a flat surface, not merely with the help of of line perspective, which actually always makes use of a distorted sculptural element, but by means of colors receding and approaching through their inner quality and not through external lines. So that I shall in fact paint with yellow or red when I want to show that something is aggressive, that something is there on the flat surface which wants to spring at me, so to speak. If something is peaceful and recedes from me, I shall paint it blue or purple, inwardly intensive color perspective. If you study the old masters, then wherever you look, even among the artists of the early Renaissance, you will find a thorough sense of color perspective. They all had it prior to the Renaissance, for it was not until the fifth post-Atlantean epoch that line perspective replaced inwardly intensive color perspective. This will connect art again with the element of spirit. It is a strange thing. But when people nowadays cogitate on how to go beyond space, they chiefly think in terms of trying to make space even more spatial. They apply a fourth dimension in this materialistic way. But a fourth dimension does not exist like that. Its existence cancels out the third dimension, like debts cancel wealth. As soon as you leave three-dimensional space, you do not enter four-dimensional space, or if you like, you enter a fourth dimension which is two-dimensional, because the fourth has cancelled out the third and only two are really there anymore. Whenever we raise ourselves above the three dimensions of the physical world to the etheric world, 
everything is two-dimensional. We can only understand the etheric if we think of it as two-dimensional. You could argue that in the etheric, I also go from here to there, that is, according to three dimensions. In the etheric, however, the third dimension has no significance, only the other two have. The third dimension is always expressed by means of the particular shade of red, yellow, blue or purple that I put on the canvas, quite irrespective of whether the canvas is here or there. And then it is not the third dimension that changes, but the color. I can have the surface wherever I like. I only have to alter the colors accordingly. This is the way to live with the colors that is, in two dimensions. Then you step from the spatial arts to the arts which, like painting, are two-dimensional and overcome what is merely spatial. Everything of a feeling nature in us has no relation to three-dimensional space. Only the will has that, whereas feeling is always two-dimensional. Therefore, we find that everything of a feeling nature in us can be reproduced in the two-dimensional medium of painting, if we rightly understand these two dimensions. As you see, you have to break away from the three-dimensional element of matter if you want to pass from the realm of architecture, the art of dress and sculpture, to painting. Thus, painting is an art of which we can say that man has an inner soul experience of it, for whether we paint or appreciate paintings, it is an inner soul experience to begin with. But what we actually experience are the externalities. We experience them in color perspective. There is no longer any difference between inside and outside. One cannot say, as one has to say with architecture, that the soul wishes to create the forms it needs when it looks down into the body. In sculpture, man's soul wishes to sculpt the kind of statues in which man is given a meaningful place in space, in the present time, according to his nature. None of these things come into consideration where painting is concerned. In painting it makes no sense to say that something is inside or outside, even where the soul is concerned. The soul is in the, is in the element of spirit all the time it is living in color. What is experienced in painting is, as it were, the soul moving freely in the cosmos. It does not matter whether we experience the picture inwardly or see it externally if, irrespective of the shortcomings of the actual paint, we see it colored. On the other hand, we come completely into the realm of soul and spirit when we come to music. Here we leave space altogether. Music has the character of a line and is one-dimensional. We also experience it in one dimension as a line in time. In experiencing it, though, we experience the world at the same time as our world. The soul wants neither to lay claim to what it needs when it enters the physical body, nor to what it needs when it departs from it, but wants to experience, through music, all that lives and vibrates in it of a soul-spiritual nature, now on earth. If you study the secrets of music, 
I have already mentioned this here before, you will arrive at what the Greeks, who were thoroughly conversant with such things, meant by the lyre of Apollo. What we experience through music is man's own unique, hidden relation to the inner harmonies and melodies of the cosmos out of which he was formed. The nerves that spread out from our spine are actually like wonderful, a wonderful stringed instrument, only its function has undergone a transformation. Our spine is the lyre of Apollo, ending above in the brain, and the separate nerve strands spreading out into the whole body. These nerve strands are the instrument upon which the soul spiritual being of man is played within the earthly world. Man himself is the most perfect instrument in the world, and an external instrument conjures forth artistic tones for human beings to the extent that a person feels, in the sound coming from the strings, something of the connection this has with his own constitution of nerve strands and arteries. Insofar as man is a being with nerves, his inner being consists of music, and he experiences music in an artistic way insofar as the music harmonizes with the secrets of his own musical constitution. So when man devotes himself to music, he is calling on the forces of his soul-spirit being living on earth. The anthroposophical process of discovering the secrets of man's inner soul-spiritual nature will therefore be able to fructify the realm of music, Not the theory, but the creation of music. For if you think of it, it is really not theorizing to say, Let us look at the lifeless world of matter, seeing it colored is a cosmic memory. By looking in a proper anthroposophical way at jewels, at colored objects, or at colors generally, we learn to realize that the gods are reminding us of all they created in ages long past. If we become aware of the fact that things are colored because gods are speaking through them, it will engender the kind of enthusiasm which comes from experiencing the spirit. That is no theorizing, but something that gives the soul immediate inner strength. This kind of thing does not lead to theorizing. It can stimulate artistic appreciation and artistic creativity itself. Wherever it appears, True art is always a search to relate to the spirit, whether it is the spirit man hopes to encounter when his soul leaves the body, or the spirit he wishes to retain in memory when he enters the body, or whether it is the spirit with which he feels related in contrast to his lack of relationship to the purely natural element in his environment, or that on the spiritual plane he feels more part of the world in the element of color, where there is no longer a distinction between inside and outside, and where, so to speak, the soul moves, feeling color to be its very existence in the cosmos, and color the gateway to the whole cosmos. Or again, even within the earthly realm, his soul feels a relationship to the soul and spirit of the cosmos, as is the case with music. Now we come to the realm of poetry. Various things I have said regarding poetic experience in ancient times, when poetry was still entirely artistic, 
can make us aware that people experienced poetry in that way at a time when they still had living connections with the spirit-soul world. As I said yesterday, to describe what Bill and Charlie are doing in the village square at Little Wallop could not have made much sense in really artistic times. For you can go to the Little Wallop village square and look at Bill and Charlie for yourself, and there will be much more in their gestures and conversation than you can describe. In the actual age of Greek art, the Greeks would have found it quite absurd to describe people in the village square or in their homes. Naturalism had the peculiar aim of making the theater, even its scenery, a mere copy of what is naturalistic. It is no stagecraft to have no real artistic understanding of the particular means at your disposal, namely the stage, any more than painting is an art if one does not paint on a surface but tries to form the colors in space. If people really wanted to be naturalistic, they ought not to make the stage an open room and have the audience there. You cannot have a room like that, for there are no such rooms. In the winter you would freeze. People make rooms that are closed on all four sides. If people wanted to act out their plays absolutely naturalistically, they would have to close the stage and do their acting behind it. If this were done, I don't know how many people would buy theater tickets. Yet a stagecraft that considered every aspect of naturalistic reality should have a fourth wall. This is being somewhat radical, of course, but it is absolutely correct. Now I only need remind you of one aspect I have often mentioned. Homer begins his Iliad with the words, quote, of Pe- Peleus' son, excuse me, of Peleus's son, Achilles, sing, O muse, close quote. This is no empty statement, for Homer positively experienced that he had to turn to a super-earthly, divine spiritual being who would use his body as an instrument for creating the art of epic poetry. Epic poetry means the upper gods, whom people experienced as feminine because they were the fructifying ones, feminine muses. He had to seek out the upper gods and put his human faculties at their disposal so that the thought element of the cosmos could be brought to expression through the events. That is what epic poetry actually is. Letting the upper gods speak of putting one's own being at their disposal. Homer begins, quote, Sing in me, muse, and through me tell the story, close quote, meaning the story of Odysseus. It would not occur to him at all just to present people with something he had thought of or seen himself. Why should he do that? Everyone can do that for himself. There is no doubt that Homer is putting his being at the disposal of the upper divine spiritual beings, so that they can express the way they see human relations on earth. That is how how epic poetry arises. And dramatic poetry. This came into being as the presentation of the god Dionysus working out of the depths. We only have to think of the pre-Aeschylus age. To begin with, it was just the person of Dionysus, Then it was Dionysus and his helpers, the chorus, grouped around him as a kind of reflection of what was performed not by humans, but by the subterranean gods, the gods of will, who made use of human figures 
so that the will of the gods, not human will, could be enacted on the stage. Not until man's connection with the spiritual world was gradually lost did purely human activity on the stage replace the activity of gods working through human beings. This process took place in Greece between the times of Aeschylus, where we still see divine impulses constantly working through human beings, and Euripides, where human beings are already human, yet still have supernatural powers. One could say, for actual naturalism was not possible until modern times. But man must find his way back to the spirit in poetry too. So we can say, quote, Epic poetry is directed toward the upper gods, dramatic poetry to the lower gods, and actual drama witnesses the sub-earthly world of gods rising up onto the earth. The human being can make himself an instrument for the activity of this lower world of gods. Now, when we look at the world from our human point of view, art is directly naturalistic. Uh, I'll just mention there's a I cannot find the there's a close quote that I cannot find in the reader, readers aside. On the other hand, the lower spiritual world rises up in dramatic poetry and an upper spiritual world descends in epic poetry. The epic muse descends in order to use man's head as her instrument and to relate what man accomplished on earth or what is being accomplished in the cosmos. Dramatic poetry rises up out of the world's depths and uses human bodies as instruments for the will of subterranean gods. Let us say, If we have the level of earth existence, then we have the divine muse of the art of epic coming down, as it were, out of the clouds, and coming up as though from the depths of the earth in smoke and fury, we have the subterranean Dionysian divine spirit powers who work upward through the human will. But we must also look through the earth's covering carpet everywhere, just like the dramatic element rises up like a volcano and the epic element descends from above like refreshing rain. And all that takes place on the same plane as ourselves, where we, as it were, experience the lowest messengers of the upper gods working together with the lower gods on the same level as ourselves, where something cosmic, not as a pedantic theory, but experienced in all its formative power, responds to a stimulus from below, becomes happy and is brought to laughter and gaiety through the spiritual fire of nymphs. In this middle zone, man becomes lyrical. He does not experience the dramatic element rising up from below, nor the epic element descending from above, but lyricism living on the same level as himself, a delicate and sensitive spirituality, which does not thunder in the forests, nor erupt in volcanoes and split the trees, but which whispers in the leaves, rejoices in the blossoms and waves in the wind. Lyricism lives everywhere, where on our own level we sense spirit in material things, where our hearts stir, we catch our breath and enter with our whole soul into a phenomenon of nature, which is an image of the soul and spirit on the same level 
as ourselves. Lyricism, let us say, looks upward to the upper gods with a happy face and downward to the lower gods with a troubled face. And although it can become dramatic lyrical in the one direction and can assume the peaceful character of epic lyricism in the other, it always remains lyrical because man experiences the earth's encircling rounds with his middle part, his powers of feeling, and feels connected with all that has its being in these encircling rounds. When we really and truly enter into the spiritual nature of the world phenomena, we cannot actually help but let our wretchedly abstract ideas gradually change into form, color, and life. Quite unaware, really, one's thought pictures become artistic pictures, because what is around us lives in the artistic element. Therefore, there is constantly this need to awaken one's wretched abstract thought definitions, be it physical body, etheric body, astral body, or anything else that one has in conceptual form. All those wretched tramlines, those trebly, pedantic, and horribly scientific definitions and give them different shades of artistic color and form. An anthroposophist has an inner need to do this, not only an outer need. The end of Lecture 9